Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Julia Claire Tillinghast here. Oh, I'm sorry, already. <laughs> um, I'm going to get your full name here. Julia Claire Tillinghast uh, Cullen here, and um, Richard Tillinghast, uh, both poets. And um, you're in town. Yesterday was your book launch at Nicola's Books over in Westgate, and the book in question, Dirty August, Poems by Edip Jansever. Um, am I getting this Turkish poet's name right, Julia? Pretty close. Why don't you, why don't you say it? <laughs> Edip Jansevich. Edip Jansevich. So there we go. That's We'll, we'll get it. That's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we also are, it's it's exciting because, um, Richard, you managed to escape the Living Writers Chair the last time you were in town right. um, for Finding Ireland, a Poet's Explorations of Irish Literature and Culture. Um, so we'll also be hearing a bit about that book of essays, good. too. So, um, so, but to start, um, I'll read your bios from the back of Dirty August. Um, to kick off. And thanks again for being here, both of you. Thank you. 
Julia Claire Tillinghast Collins' poems and translations have appeared in Boston Review, Crazy Horse, Irish Pages, Northern Passengers, Southwester, and elsewhere. A graduate of the undergraduate writing program at Sarah Lawrence College, she is currently an MFA candidate in the creative writing program at Virginia Tech University. Born in San Francisco, raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, she lived, worked, and studied Turkish in Istanbul, Turkey from 2004 to 2008, and now lives in Blacksburg, Virginia, with her son, Hamsa. That was biography number one. Now moving on to Richard. Richard Tillinghast is the author of 10 books of poetry. Most recently, The New Life, 2008, from Copper Beach Press, and Selected Poems, 2009, from Daedalus Press in Ireland. His books of nonfiction include Finding Ireland, A Poet's Explorations of Irish Literature and Culture, and Robert Lowell's Life and Work, Damaged Grandeur, A Critical Memoir. He has received grants from the Amy Lowell Trust, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Research Institute in Turkey, and the Irish Council, Arts Council. Um, welcome once again to both of you. Thanks, T. And so how many book launches have you guys had in the States, and has there been one in Ireland, and has there been one in Istanbul for Dirty August? Well, we had our our U.S. launch of the book in Blacksburg, Virginia, um, in March, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then and then Ann Arbor was was number two on the list. We haven't had a launch in Istanbul yet, but we're hoping to soon. Yeah, and and we don't have any plans for doing one in Ireland, but uh, I think the place we would really like to launch the book now is Istanbul. And is there, do you have a community of of friends there? Because both of you, you've lived, spent a good chunk of time there. Um, we do have to two. return to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And why don't you describe your, your group of friends? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of different friends there. I, I work there uh, teaching English. So a lot of my, my friends come come out of that um, community of, of uh, Turkish as well as um, foreign teachers of English. The expats. Mm-hmm. And the... Yes, yes. And my yeah. friends would be mostly the expats. And there, because there's a, uh, there is a, uh, uh, not a large, but there's a very vibrant group of uh, poets and translators that I've gotten to know there. Some, uh, some American, uh, some Turkish, some English, uh, uh, the typical kind of expat uh, mix. But they're people who are doing really good work in in translation in Istanbul. They're they're a lot of fun as well. Is what brought you to to Turkey? Was it discovering Edip uh, John Shaver? Oh. <laughs> we'll call him Edip. Am I getting that oh, yeah, part at least yeah, correct? Yeah. Okay. So was it? Did, were you somehow reading and found Edip and wanted to to translate him more, or what brought you all to Turkey and and this poet in particular? Well, I uh, I first went to Turkey in uh, to Istanbul in 1964. I was that was my first exposure to it, and then went back, uh, have gone back many times after that, but I was... Why did you go in 64 then, Richard? Oh, I was traveling, I was in Greece, and I was with some friends, and they said, would you like to go to Istanbul? And I really didn't know where it was or anything like that, but I said, sure. And uh, so, and we went by ship, which was great. That's a, uh, and I thought about sailing to Byzantium as we sailed into the harbor, and uh, 
but uh, I, we, I first got uh, connected to John Sever uh, when I was taking a Turkish class at the University of the Bosphorus. Um, the Turkish teacher brought a copy of the poem table in Masada Masamusha and just said, you know, have a go at translating it. And, and I could tell that this was a really extraordinary poet. So that's how my uh, interest in him began. And that that's, that poem that poem table is sort of a, a poem that's very close to you as a poet. There's something that part of you that's been grafted into it as well then, Richard? Very much so. I, I sometimes feel as if I wrote it, though, I, of course, I didn't. But. <laughs> But but but isn't that so that's kind of the interesting at the core of translation, isn't it? When you really when some work is really important to you and what connects you to it, it makes it feel as if it's yours or you have an understanding of the words and the rhythms more than anyone else. That's why you should be translating it, perhaps. Or <laughs> Yesterday, Julia was saying that uh, when you translate, you. You channel that poet. Do you can you do you want to say anything more about that idea? Um, but I feel that too. <laughs> there was a shake of the head there. <laughs> uh, I I agree with her on that, and I feel uh, the same way that when you really start translating, when you feel as if you're somehow that poet is inside of you, and you're inside the poet. Mm-hmm. So there's a strange relationship aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And so can you tell us um, or tell me and the listeners <laughs> a little bit about um, John Shiver then, like uh, his his history, his historical moment? Well, John Severs, uh I'm not sure when he was born. In, 1926. I think 19, uh, 26. No, 1928. Sorry. Okay. And he died in 1986. Um, and he he lived in Istanbul. He uh, he was part of the Ikinji Yeni school of of experimental Turkish poets, which means the second new. Um, but it was one of the one of the earliest free verse movements of poetry in Turkey. Um, and he was not an academic um, by any stretch of the imagination. He he worked in um he sell, sold antiques in the grand bazaar that was what he did to make a living um and uh yeah what, what would you like to say well uh if you think about him being born in the 20s uh that was the period where um turkey would that would be called the republican period in in turkish history that was when uh, Turkey really freed itself from the Ottoman Empire, which had been centered in Turkey, and they won their their war of of national liberation, which was a great thing for the Turks. And they uh, their leader uh, Ataturk, or father of the Turks, um, was the ruler of Turkey at, at the time. And Ataturk's uh, mission was to secularize the Turks. Uh, to bring them into the modern world. And uh, so uh, John Severe would have been the first of that generation. To, in today's terms, if there are any Turkish listeners, uh, uh, they would know that they. I think it would be very fair to, to talk about John Severe as a Kemalist, a, a, a secular uh, European-looking Turk. 
Mm. And and it's important that he began writing in free verse, especially with this idea of moving into the mod- Turkey into the modern mm-hmm. time. So he was part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Julia, was it because w- what age? Because when you first went to Turkey, was it to teach English, or were you there as a young? Um, since since you're a family, were you also there earlier um, with your dad? And is that what drew you to this particular poet too? Because I can see now we've got the table um, mm-hmm. spark with you, Richard. Julia, what was your connection with him? Well, well we never went to Turkey as a family. Um, what I do remember my, my father went for, I guess it was a summer program and it I remember it being a few months that he was going. That's right. Yeah, and I remember that was a really big deal because he was going to be gone so long, and he uh, he got all these postcards and addressed them to himself and left them for us to encourage us to, to write to him. <laughs> I, I think somebody had to write to him every day. I think that was the deal. <laughs> somebody wanted to. Right. <laughs> right. Wanted to and had to. Somebody had to. Um but I first went to Turkey uh, with my father in 2004, I think. After I graduated from college, that was my, my graduation present. So uh, so we just went for a couple of weeks, and I was kind of, you know, I had just graduated. I was back in, in Ann Arbor, which can be a kind of quicksand place, you know. Um, and if I, you grew up here. If you grew up here, right. Uh, and I just, I just fell in love with Istanbul with the, that city and and I wanted to learn Turkish so I just decided after that trip that I was going to move there and worked at Zingerman's very intensely for a few months to to come up with the plane fare and just went so uh, and and then you were there for the next 4 years then mhm yep mhm and studying the language and so was it then that this this um poet particularly drew your fascination to or was he part of just the greater exploration that you were doing of the, the, the poetry? Well, I also, um, funnily enough, translated one of his poems for a class. I was taking a Turkish class and we had an assign our final assignment was to translate something and and I was really looking for a different poet because, you know, I'm always you know, I'm I'm a poet. My father is a poet. I I just seem to always be following in his footsteps against my will, really. Uh, But, you know, I I was looking on the Internet. I I read a lot of different poets, and and the poem that I was really drawn to was an Edip Jansavar poem. And I sent my father the—I love translating. It's it's really fun. And and I sent my my father the the translation, and then he said— you know, he we just started discussing it, and and that's kind of how the project came to be. So, and and it's fun. Like, what can you describe the parts of it that make it fun? Like, what part of the imagination is tapped into, or what is the? Well, there's a problem solving aspect to it. Um, for I think that's I think that's a big part of what make makes it fun. Um, and then. Um, it's a really deep kind of reading. Like if you could read, but at the same time, you know, to take something apart into all its little pieces, it, it just, it feels like a really deep kind of reading. You know, It's like a surgeon almost, like with with a body, like yeah. learning the anatomy, but you're looking at the words and the yeah. pieces, how they, what's between the words. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a poem happening, and that's something that you're familiar with in English. 
and you can feel it happening, uh, but it's in this foreign language, and and you start to feel right. I know, I know exactly what's going on here, and then the only thing is to find the the right words in English. And was it key that he was writing in free verse to the actual being able to translate? Because I know in some languages, there's if there's other parts to consider, how do you replicate that in our own? That would have uh, been almost impossible. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Your faces are like, if you yeah. only knew. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> well, I'll tell you what, let's take a short break and then okay. we'll be, come back and, and could we hear... Um, from from you both reading in in Turkish and then the translation. Does we that, would enjoy that. Well, that's, okay, wonderful. Well, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Uh, Julia, Claire, Tillinghast, a Cullen, and Richard Tillinghast. We'll be right back. Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table. Put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window. Sound of a bicycle sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there, on the table the man put things that happened in his mind, what he wanted to do in life, he put that there, those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table, too. Three times three make nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Richard Tillinghast and Julia Claire Tillinghast Cullen. Um, thanks for being here today, you guys. Yes, thanks for having us. A pleasure. Us. Thank you. <laughs> and tomorrow, onwards to Bear River. And, yeah. Um, so, so Richard, tell us a little bit about um, the piece table that we were just listening to at the break. Julia mentioned that uh, John Sever sold antiques in the covered bazaar, so it's kind of perfect. Uh, he he would have seen a lot of tables. He would have seen a lot of secondhand tables, and there's something about uh, the table is such a perfect metaphor uh, because. I don't know about you, but when I stay in a room that doesn't have a table in it, it, it, I feel uncomfortable. It's like there's no place to put things. And I think that's what the table metaphorically is about, is a place to put things. And you could say that you have a place in your mind 
that you you need to have a place to put things because otherwise it would be total chaos. It would be like um, it would be like being up in space with weightlessness. Everything mm-hmm. would be floating around. So he it seems to me he came up with the perfect metaphor. And why did you choose to do that song? Because this was a band that you had while you were in Ann Arbor. Yeah. And your son, uh-huh. Josh, plays the drums. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so could you tell us a little bit about that project? And That was really a fun project uh, because these musicians are all so good. And we, uh, well, we cut the record in, in Ann Arbor and we did everything, every single cut we did on the second take and we it was which is people who've done recording you would know how how rare uh that that is we would just kind of work it through on the first tape and then we recorded the second tape but we recorded it in a basement over on um fourth or fifth i can't remember uh and these are all young musicians and i would just read the poem uh, tell them a little bit about kind of the mood of the poem, what I would like to, you know, how I would hear it. And it was great to see them. Then they would just say, all right, well, you know, you do that and you do that. And, and the whole thing came together. It was a very intuitive process. And how did you get the name of the, the group? God knows. Uh, that was their <laughs> that was their name. And uh, uh, so I don't know. So the poignant, go, go ahead and... Yeah, take... poignant placostomous. I guess a, a placostomous... <laughs> Placostomus is a, a bottom feeder. Why that would be poignant, I'm not sure. Uh, well, I don't know what, why that's poignant, but I mean, it, it was a fusion band, you know, with a yeah. lot of different. So I think a bottom feeder, I don't know. I think Collects. they like. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but yeah. I wanted to say about that poem, Table, um, you know, there's just one of the things in there that I, that I really love about John Severe's work, you know, he's really. Um, an imaginative, experimental, and emotional poet. You definitely wouldn't call him a descriptive poet, but he's so good with the tangible and concrete. Um, and I, I just, I just love that uh, that line. You know, for so many days he had wanted to drink a, a beer. He placed on the table the pouring of that beer. You know, not it's not the drinking of the beer, but just that the, the pleasure. You know comes in the moment of the pouring of the beer. Because of the anticipation, perhaps, that moment where it's just about... Because that is the most pleasurable when you've you've gotten what you wanted, when you've not when you've almost gotten what you've wanted, you know that you've gotten it. That's the most pleasurable moment, not when you're desiring it or when you've when you're fulfilled, but but the, the in between those two. That's true. Because yeah. in the fulfilling, you're a step away from the end of it as well. Right, right, right. <laughs> or it's not what you thought it would be, or you know, you know it doesn't totally That's... satisfy you. Yeah, yeah. Go. Oh. Well, love. Well, love, let's hear it. Could we hear okay. you read? Okay. And how about you read it in Turkish, and I'll read it in English. Yeah. So we're gonna. Read this poem, Sheker Li Gercek. Um, I really enjoy reading this poem in Turkish, although I have to apologize in advance to, to any listeners who, who speak Turkish for errors that I will no doubt make. But I'll, I'll give it a try. <clears throat> so in English, it's called Sweet Reality. In Turkish, it's called Sheker Li Gercek. And... Uh, 
we we've actually been opening our readings with with this poem um even though table might be a more natural one to go with um and and one reason i like opening with this because is because it's so sad and uh it i think it really it it c communicates how emotional uh his poems can be ev karan look cap kachak sorry i'm gonna start again ev karan look kap kachak ine üstünde karası çocukları var mı yok mu belli değil masa iskim iskemle ocak arama öyle şeyleri bir sofra bir yaygı bir seyder olsun yok mu yok o da yok işte İreti bir yaşayış içinde adam. Duvarları yalnızlık yemiş, bitirmiş. Gökyüzü üstünde, yıldızlar daha üstünde. Kim örtsün damı duvarları, kim koysun yerine? Adam bir hiçliğin üstüne uzanmış. Kimseler görmez. Kil torba içinde sabunlar kımıldaşır. Sabah kadar. Adam bittiğini anlayınca hiçlikten. Gelsin pencere, gelsin duvar, gelsin karısı, çocukları. Islak taşlar sabah işleri. Adam dükkana döner gene. O gerçek dediğimiz şey ışıl ışıl. Yapışık sesler çıkarır şekerlerin üstünde. It is a sad poem, and it's great to hear it in Turkish. Um, uh, the word yok means there's, there is none, and it, you could, if you were listening to what Julia was reading, you could hear that word over, and there, were a lot of, there are a lot of things that were, are not there. Um, funnily enough, this is one of the few, we pride ourselves on trying to translate very literally, and funnily enough, this is one of the few poems where there was something in Turkish, uh, two or three lines in Turkish we just left out because we, we just couldn't think of a way to say it. We didn't, we just left it out. And uh, it, was, uh, there a, was there a feeling that, was, that you knew, but it wasn't trans completely? I, I can kind of feel what it means when I'm reading. Can, I, I don't know if you can. Yeah, I, I, I, it's kind of a sense of emptiness. Uh, I, I felt. Yeah, I think when you're... The line means something like uh, inside of this um, kill torba, I thought was clay, but you were no, saying... No, it's, it's kind of a... Something like a string bag, I think. Okay, so inside this string bag, the pieces of soap are stirring f until, uh, until morning. But, yeah, it, I think... Uh, this this poem is about a, a man who's alone so in a house where where there's a lot of profound loneliness i think maybe the objects kind of make a sound you know things kind of sound the sound is kind of even more resonant because there, there's so much emptiness so that kind mm. of makes sense it does if this were uh uh, uh if this were a country music song this would be uh Hello Walls, the <laughs> Willie Nelson song. But here's what it sounds like in uh, 
in English or in, or in our translation. And I think you can see that Julia was talking about the John Severus use of particulars and and that one thing we haven't mentioned is what a philosophical poet he was. So you can see in this poem how he combines those two things. Uh, so we call it sweet reality. The house is dark. The pots and pans hang from a nail. It isn't clear whether he has a wife and children. Don't look for things like table, chair, stove, dining table, and tablecloth. As for a sofa, there is none. No. And again, no. The man has a makeshift way of living. Loneliness has devoured the walls. The sky is overhead, and above that, the stars. Let someone come along and put a roof and put walls in place. This man is stretched out over emptiness. No one sees. The house takes it easy. Once the man understands he is finished with nothingness, he'll be ready for windows and doors for a wife and children, scrubbed flagstones and the morning's chores. And he'll return to the shop. What we call reality is something bright and shiny. When you bite down on it, it crunches. Well, thank you both. With the process of it, you, Julia, you mentioned that it started with a poem that you were you were undertaking to translate for a class. Um, mm -hmm. And so was that the method that you used, or was it that each of you took a group of poems and would do the first run through with it and then send them to each other and that's how the conversation worked well yeah for part for i guess a, a good part of the process we were in different countries so uh it would usually be that one of us would initiate a poem and then we would have you know do kind of a literal translation and then we would start to have a a conversation about it so some of them some of the poems kind of feel like more mine and some of them feel like more his. But then um, in, I think, I think it was January or Dece December, maybe early January, uh, the right after my son was born, uh, my dad came to Michigan. I was staying in Michigan and we had a great period of, I don't know, maybe a, a week or two of working really intensely to, to really together collaboratively side by side on the poems while my son was sort of you know he was still in the stage when he slept all the time so he w he was in you know in his his car seat that you take out and uh sleeping while we were the, at least that's how I remember it while while we were working on the poems together so some of them we really just went through together and that that was great to have that time and yeah. i like the the the fact that we didn't really have an ironclad method you know we did we didn't have we didn't we never settled into kind of a routine it was much more intuitive and much more kind of opportunistic and and uh i feel i feel good about that the book now that the book is out the book has a really good feel about it you know, and and uh, I'm proud of it, and I like the way it feels and the way the poems all hang together. How, how did you pick these particular poems um, for Dirty August? What was it? Because is it would you is it fair to say that it it goes across his his 
life as a poet, or it is does, it more yeah. a period? Okay. Yeah, it does. It's. Uh, I think about it. It's just uh, a lot of poems by him that we liked, and then there there would be poems uh, of his that we liked, but that didn't translate well into English. And then there were ones. I mean, he he wrote some, for example, some longer poems. Uh, I hope we'll have time for one of his longer poems, but some of his other longer poems with characters and everything in them. I don't I don't know how well it would be hard to translate those into English. So I guess I would just fall back on what I said before is we, we really didn't have a method. It's kind of poems by him that we like. I think there are more poems. I, I think there could be another book that we, we could do easily. Yeah. Is that something that that may just happen organically. It may. I mean, as I was saying before, I was looking for a different Turkish poet to translate, and now I'm in that process again. I'd like to keep working on translation, so I've been asking my my Turkish friends who read poetry, you know, who they like, and you know, wouldn't it be cool to be do a woman? Wouldn't it be cool to do you know a someone a living? Su- uh, someone living that would yeah. be great. A Sufi poet, you know, just with the issues of, about, you know, John Severe is a secular poet, but it would be great to do some, someone who had a religious connection, especially with the the relevance of Islam in America uh, today. But We'll see then the perfect poet for that would be Sezai Karakoc. Yes. So we, who's, we, a sur- who's religious and also a surrealist. So, Perfect. so, so we might do another uh, another poet, but uh, I, I find myself still drawn to to the Adip Johnson air poems that we haven't translated yet. So, and were you the ones that? Because I'm I'm not familiar with his poetry. This was the first time. Um, and so, are you the first translators into English as well? No one has ever done a book of his before. Just okay. a few odd poems, uh, you know, a scattering of poems in English, but no one's done a book before. So, so you, that's so that's yeah. wonderful that you bring bring him into like the English speaking world then more yeah, prominently. It's a good feeling. Well, let's take let's take a short break and then we'll we'll come back and then we'll hear what's the name of the long poem that we're going to hear when we come back. Mendilimde kansesleri the the sounds of blood from my handkerchief. <laughs> Ooh, all right, so stay tuned. Living Writers will have more soon with Richard Tillinghast and Julia Claire Tillinghast at Cullen. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Fatal rhyme that, chat all of that. Get the jacket, get the 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Julia Claire Tillinghast of Cullen here and Richard Tillinghast, um, the father-daughter daring duo here in the studio, poets both. Um, and their book, uh, Dirty August, uh, is just released, and we're also going to be talking about Richard Tillinghast's book, his book of essays, Finding Ireland, uh, a little bit later in the program. Um but first, a quick announcement, uh, because it's the 50th anniversary of To Kill a Mockingbird this year, which is it's 50 years old. And Nicholas Books and Michigan Theater are going to be putting on a special showing of, of the film with a panel to discuss the book afterwards on June 10th. So that's the birthday party for To Kill a Mockingbird. It's 50. And uh, look for more information, I guess, at Nicholas Books or Michigan Theater. The date to, to go uh, to see the film, June 10th. All right. Nicholas, as if I may interject, please. Nicholas is, is that's where we launched this book last, last night. night. Yeah. And Nicholas is taking up some of the slack from the demise of of Shame and Drum. It would be great if everyone supported them because they they until recently they really hadn't done any poetry events and they they uh, they launched Ann Carson's book recently. Had a really good turnout, Knox. and the, and they yeah. launched uh, our book last night. So it's it's uh, poetry lovers should go should go to those events. It's like Shame and Drum, only it's in the Westgate Shopping Center. So so easier parking. Yes, That's and right. uh, U of M poet Khaled Matawa is reading there. Uh, late, I think later that this month. Uh, so you should check that out too. Another yes. translator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Friend of the show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's actually got a panel going on um, at the university for That's the next right. three yeah. days. Radius of Arab. Uh, what's it called? Radius of Arab American writers. Something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That sounds. That's. That's this closer than I could get right now, Richard. But yeah, so hopefully maybe we'll even have a couple of the people in the program. So that would we'll, be great. Does, we'll see how that goes. And we just, um, I'm sure people are wondering who that extremely talented rapper was that we just heard. That was uh, Jeza, C-E-Z-A, representing Uskudar from the Asian side of Istanbul. Uh, he's incredible, so... And Julia's seen him, and so that, that wasn't even sped up. He was just doing it. So, yeah, pretty cool. Yes, yes. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for picking that one, Julia. Mm -hmm. That was great. Um, so, without further ado, let's, let's hear the, the, the blood from the handkerchief. <clears throat> so, this is kind of a long poem, but I hope you'll bear with me. I think it has <clears throat> several interesting turns, and I think it really 
earns its length, as we would say in MFA programs. <clears throat> so this is uh, the sounds of blood from my handkerchief, Mendelimden Kanseslede. And uh, it's kind of a poem of address um, to a friend, and the friend is named Ahmet, and he addresses him as Ahmet Abi. Abi in, in Turkish, it means older brother, um, but it's just kind of a, a term of affection, and you would you would say that to anyone, you know, uh, who's who's either uh, a friend who is slightly older than you, or uh, even someone who's younger than you, just to to show respect to that person. Um, <clears throat> so, and we chose to translate it sometimes, and other tra- times not to translate it, and just to leave it as Abi. <clears throat> It reaches everywhere eventually. There's no stopping it. Forgive me, my child. Ahmet Abi, you forgive me too. If I hang my head, it's not because I'm feeling low. Not at all. Oh, my beautiful Ahmet, my brother. A person resembles the place where he lives. He's like the water of the place, the soil. The fish swimming in its waters, the flowers planted in its soil, the misty slopes of its mountains and hills. He resembles the whiteness of Konya, the red flatness of Antep. He mirrors its lakes, his tears are blue. He resembles its oceans, his glances are like waves. Its houses, its streets, its street corners, that's how much he resembles it. And its courtyards, his heart is constricted by the circumference of a well. And its talk, the language, maybe, of the guys who sell pocket mirrors. He's like someone who asks one day for directions, questioning and questioning a sorrowful ghosts. He resembles how a glass cutter cuts glass, the way a carpenter handles his tools. A particular way of lighting a cigarette, the way someone opens a soda. Its minibuses, its slums are his, its longings, its lies. His memories are of unemployment. His pain is its, his consciousness. His knife is its drying tears. You're not laughing, you know. To laugh, if the people laugh, that's laughter. We're so much like Turkey, Ahmet Abi. Long ago, you were holding a beautiful wine glass, your elbow propped against a chair. At one time, I would have said, propped against the sky. The things we write are pictures on a pack of cigarettes. The pictures are prisons. The pictures, longing. The pictures, from time immemorial. A flexed muscle. Your love, urgent. Your friendship, quick. I'm looking now. That glass sits in my hand like a curse. The thing we call time, what is it, Ahmet Abi? We used to walk around the stations one by one. Back then, the stations smelled like Malatya. They smelled like Nazuli. When dampened by rain, like mail from Edirne. Under the Istanbul rain, fine as strands of hair, You were like a man who loved a dark woman, a woman with skin like ironed calico, her long neck, her eyelashes, 
and for you, Ahmet, my brother, she would have traveled from a great distance to cut cheese and tomatoes for you. She would have set your table. She would have placed her hand upon what flowed from your heart as easily as she would put her hand to water. She would have brought you cigarettes if you landed in prison. She would have had your children, and she would have treated those children's world-saving hands as if she were sewing lace. Those children will grow up. Those children will grow up. Those children. Don't play, play the fool, Ahmet Abi. Don't give up hope. Put away hopelessness. What I'm saying is this. Back then, trains seemed like something doomed to extinction, whereas now they seem so useful. We are living a life nearly devoid of imagination. Children, women, men, the trains are full to the brim. The trains are like trains heading to the front line. Workers, workers making the journey to Germany, women, some travelers, some foreign guards, suitcases in their hands, string bags, cologne, bottled water, packages. They, all of them, grow like trees taken hostage and growing in the wrong places. Oh, beautiful Ahmet, my brother, look, do you see? Now the stations look like untidy marketplaces, and the nation is like an untidy marketplace. And I don't want to let it get me down. Sadness comes and goes like a melody in jazz, that fast, that short, just like that. Ahmed, my beautiful brother, why would a handkerchief bleed? It's not a tooth, it's not a nail, why would a handkerchief bleed? My handkerchief is full of the sounds of blood. Thank you, Julia. Yeah. Thank you. Well, was that one of the poems that you both worked on in the December-January period together? Do you remember? <laughs> I, I, I'm famous for having a bad memory. It's not a sign of dementia, though. <laughs> we learned that recently. No, <clears throat> no I, I think this was one we, we worked um, at a distance on, but it's a really long poem. So uh, I, I remember working really intensely on it together as well. I mean, there, was, there were a lot of things that came up uh, that I, I definitely couldn't solve on my own. I think I, I, I started it. That's right. You started it, and then I was working on. Now that you mentioned, I remember I was working on it in, in Ireland, so we were doing it from a distance. It seems, like you said, that he he's not speaking in the abstract as much as he uses the objects to talk about the abstract. Yeah. So, so did that make it? Was that like one of the reasons, like your way in, because you're able to name the objects as he names them? Yeah, I think that's a really good insight, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, because you can, it's it's easy to access that. It's easy to translate at least the nouns, you know. Um, and then, and then you kind of have to get the spirit of it and have that sense that you're that you're channeling it, that you know what the feeling is, and that's something you you catch on on your own. But but I I think that's a really good insight. Because yeah. for an, as an example, Julia, the part with the children, mm -hmm. uh, where the last beat of that part is those children mm -hmm. um now is that how close is that 
to what um, John Chavert had and what is it? Could you read that short piece for us and talk about that? If it's a good example, but if not, sure, yeah. we can move along. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I love this part. But so he's he's saying it's weird because it's all a metaphor. He's saying you were you were like a man who loved a dark woman, and he's talking about this woman and how much. Uh, what she would do for him, yeah, right? That's, but it, that's cigarettes at prison, and yeah. all the things that she would do for him are very Turkish. She would cut, she would cut tomatoes and, and cheese because that's what you always eat when you when you eat. And she, Turks smoke a lot, so she would. And it's more common for people to spend time in in, in prison in Turkey than it is here, really, in, in that. Um, There've been a lot of uh, there've been a lot of people put in jail because of their political views, in, in ter- unfortunately. So it wasn't beyond the pale. These these images that he's he's bringing us. It was yeah. Right. It would these would be very familiar things to a lot of people. Yeah, but so it it so he's talking about. Uh, she would have brought you cigarettes if you landed in prison. She would have had your children. And she would have treated those children, children's world-saving hands as if she were sewing lace. Those children will grow up. Those children will grow up. Those children. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's pretty much exactly what it says in I Turkish. I think so. Yeah. yeah. We, we didn't mess around. We tried to be very literal and still make it a poem. I mean, that's an amazing part because it's like that very, like the rest of the poem, there's like, there's sadness or there's some maybe pieces of humor, like she'll mm-hmm. bring you the cigarette, like, I don't know. Um, but that part is very hopeful because the children will grow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even these, they're though, they're just the imagination of this, this couple. I think that's what people who, uh, who translate or what, who do what are called translations, when they they don't know the language, I I I think they they're missing so much. You know, there are a lot of people who do what are called translations. They get a literal translation and then they work with it. But um, if people who did that kind of thing only realized how much more rewarding it it is to work with the language, and you don't have to be you don't have to have expert knowledge of a language. If you know the basics and you have a dictionary and you have people you could ask about things. But uh, Julia and I, between the two of us, know Turkish pretty darn well. And uh, it's just so much fun to work with the, uh, I mean, Turkish is such, every language expresses itself in its own idiosyncratic ways. And you have to figure out how to take those idiosyncratic ways from Turkish and put them into English, but uh, that's what makes it such fun to translate. Do you? Oh, go ahead, Julia. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, in, in addition to to actually knowing the language or having some working knowledge of the language you're translating from, it's really important to know the culture. Yeah. And uh, I think this poem, it, it's a. I think it it really it's about a, an intense friendship, but it's also really about Turkey, and uh, you would lose a lot if if you didn't have some sense of that here and when you translate you're translating not just a poem from one language to another you're translating from one culture 
into into another culture, and that's uh, that's just a really exciting thing to be doing. And and the the historical moment of it too. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. we've heard the two different Turkish musical tracks, <laughs> <laughs> very vastly different. different. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, and I think I mean I think this poem. This thing he says, the nation is like an untidy marketplace. I think part part of it is about the the uh, the kind of increasing commercialization um, in Turkey, or, or or just the um, you know in the twenties the the country started to op- open economically a lot a lot more, which is really good for the Turkish economy, but um, but also you know there's a lot of loss that comes with it. Um, I remember what we had difficulty with was this, uh, he's like someone who asks one day for, for directions, questioning and questioning a sorrowful ghost. Do you remember that? I do. (laughs) That was hard. (laughs) What was the tricky part? What was the... Well, I mean, once, once you translate, you want to translate it into something that makes sense in, in English. And I, I don't know that it still makes any sense. I don't, I don't have that good of a sense of what really what that means. So, well, you were talking about uh, a, a little bit of ambiguity in a, in a poem, and how a little bit, or maybe a little bit of obscurity, and how that makes reading poetry is a it's something you, that the writer shares with the reader. You both create the poem. In this case, it's even more complicated than that because. The writer and the reader are sharing with this person who was uh, this mysterious being who was who you'll never really know who was because I feel that way about John Severe. There's something deeply mysterious about him as a as a figure. Uh, Do you find him coming into your own poems now? Uh, what would you say? Uh, yeah, I mean, someone asked about this last night and. And uh, I mean, for me, just the fact that he he's he is so concrete in in the particular details, but yet very, very wild, very imaginative, experimental, emotional, but but also so concrete at the same time. Uh, but he's not again, he's not a descriptive poet where where it's just all about, you know, accurately reflecting the the visuals of some scene or anything. Um, it's, it's, I do, I do find that encouraging, I guess. Uh, but also this, do you find it in your work as well then? Or do you feel like that's one of the reasons maybe why you were drawn to him because recognizing something that he was up to was something that you were also. I mean, yeah, I guess that's a chicken egg kind of question. (laughs) Let's make breakfast. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, he also in this poem, he, he says, he resembles how a glass cutter cuts glass the way a carpenter handles its tools. It reminds me of that, the pouring of that beer thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the way somebody... Uh, it's not the object made. It's the, right. the handling of the tool and the, the process. Exactly, exactly. A particular way of lighting a cigarette, the way someone opens a soda. So it's, yeah, that, that action in process. How well known was his voice at the time? Because if he worked at the marketplace, was it something where he had poems that he was able to print and distribute um, at his own stall? Or was it, how was his, was he part of the community of poets that 
was known in the political sphere. Um, he says in one place that every poet who uh, wrote in it at the time, every poet who wrote in free verse would have been considered a communist. You know, in other <laughs> words, the, you see what I mean? The uh, the uh, uh, the form would have a political association, but uh, Turkey has a very uh, a very strong publishing industry. There are lots of books. There are lots lots lots of publishers. Lots of books of poetry. Uh, the Turks are great readers, uh, and this his poems have gone through many printings. So he would have been; it wouldn't have been a cottage industry thing. He would have been right out in the uh, in the literary marketplace. Well, that's great. I mean, that's great to know because I and I only asked because Julio, you said, well, he was certainly not an academic, like with that sort of s- sparkle to your voice about that. So I was wondering if he was an outsider, how much of an outsider, mm-hmm. and if he's in. The, um, oh, I get the sense that he had a, a very strong community of of other writers that he drank with yeah <laughs> well that, that being key that's of part, course <laughs> that's part of it because we one of the things that we provide in our book is an introductory essay that tries to give you give people a sense of what that scene was like and it's true there's a particular part of istanbul and it's still true today uh the uh, it's called tunnel or it's in a, the larger district called beolu and th- that's just where people get together at night and drink raka. And, uh, and there's certain – in Turkey, you don't drink without eating. And there's certain things that are that you eat, uh, meze, uh, appetizers, you know, cheese and cucumbers and lots of other stuff. But uh, the Turks uh, like to eat, drink. And stay up really late and smoke a lot of cigarettes. And, and it's still, this. I think the scene that's going on, that's up there in that neighborhood, in the Asmala Mezjit neighborhood, is still very, must be very similar to what it was like in his well, day. Well, I, I think so. I mean, in terms of the, the food and, and drink that's offered. But I think the difference would be, uh, it's really more... Uh, I think the class dynamics have shifted a little bit. I mean, I, I, it's not, I, it's not really a working class place that you you would go at anymore. Mm-hmm. Or you wouldn't go to Asmali Masjid. It's far too expensive. But uh. <laughs> so, does that mean that there's a new place in the city that's filled that? I don't know. So it's a question for let's go. Yeah. Turkey, yeah. <laughs> which is, which you were part of doing that, Richard. I was. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to be a travel writer. Yeah. So well, well, let's take let's take is it time for a short break, and then we'll come back, okay. um, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about finding Ireland. We're moving around the globe here on Living Good. Writers today. Um, who who knows where next with the Tilling House here? Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Um, we've been talking about Dirty August. Uh, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor um, with Richard Tilling Hass, Julia Claire Tilling Hass, Cullen. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Julia Clare, Tillinghast Akalan, and her uh, poet father, poets both, Richard Tillinghast. And I'm T. Hetzel. I'm starting to croak, so it's a good thing we're <laughs> getting a little bit croaky here. <laughs> um, so that was some some beautiful Irish music to lead us into the part. Like, I'd love to talk about your book, Finding Ireland, the book of essays, Richard. Um, it's called A Poet's Introduction to Irish Literature and Culture. And there are literary essays. There's some essays about uh, kind of re- letters from Dublin in particular years when I was, before I was living there. Because now you live in Kilkenny or? I live, yeah, I live near, I live just 20 minutes from the city of Kilkenny on the side of the mountain, Schlievnaman. And this little uh, 